Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. 60 years after the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, where does the country stand and where does San Diego stand? I'm Jade Hindman. Here's the conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. The consensus is that progress has been made to reach Dr. Martin Luther King's dream, but some of that progress is being rolled back. Well, historically, there's been a backlash to the perceived gains of black people in this country. We'll break down the work that needs to be done and talk with one San Diego organization doing some of that work by lifting people out of poverty. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This week marks 60 years since the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. In 1963, 250,000 people gathered around the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. to demand voting rights, fair wages, economic justice, education, civil rights, and an end to segregation. Here to discuss how much progress has been made on those demands and what work still needs to be done is Professor Adisa Alkabalan, Ph.D. He is chair and associate professor in the Department of Africana Studies at San Diego State University. Professor Alkabalan, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thank you. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. Um, as we look back 60 years after the March on Washington, what should we be celebrating? I think we should celebrate the March on Washington as an example of the power of protest. And despite the criminalization of protest then and now, it demonstrates the collective power that people have and that how mobilizing grassroots organizations on a massive scale can truly bring about change. And it's not that I don't have conceptual issues with the march. Uh, or some of the behind-the-scenes negotiations, but it's important to celebrate the successes of the march, namely the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act that followed, 
But I also celebrate A. Philip Randolph, who began organizing a march on Washington more than 20 years prior. Uh, he proposed it in 1941, and out of it came the Fair Employment Practice Committee and an executive order banning discrimination in defense industry. So it was uh, his brainchild uh, that the so-called Big Six uh, seize upon uh, for the 1963 march. So I also celebrate uh, A. Philip Randolph uh, as well. You know, many are are under the assumption that the generation who fought for all those things and fought in the 60s didn't do enough. What are your thoughts on that? Well, then perhaps we should have done a better job providing them with that historical and political education. Um, But I'm hard pressed to find a mass collection of folks who fought and sacrificed as much as activists in the civil rights and black power movements did. And there is a tendency to erase the black power movement and black nationalists for their equally important contributions towards uh, African-American liberation. Um, But did enough happen? Perhaps not. Uh, But I don't blame those who are a part of the movement. I blame those who didn't take the baton and continue the struggle. It's an unreasonable expectation that 1960s advocates should have solved all of the racial and economic problems that plagued our community. Um, But what are what are we doing now? You know, how are we addressing the issues of our society today? So I would I would ask those questions in return. You know, and you that that's an interesting point um, about people not picking up the baton and um, and moving forward. What generation do you think failed to do that? And why? Wow. Well, I mean, you're seriously trying to get me in trouble with uh, folks who I <laughs> teach today. But uh, I think that we all kind of have, you know, that responsibility. I mean, e- even those who uh, were, you know, alive during the civil rights and black power uh, eras, uh, and perhaps it's unfair for them, but, you know, they've, you know, kind of, you know, passed the baton uh, and, you know, kind of sitting back watching things uh, unfold. Uh, and certainly, you know, younger people today, rather we're talking about, you know, millennials or Gen Zers, there's this, and as a, you know, as a historian, you know, as an Africana studies professor, uh, I see how uh, limited uh, students or young people's knowledge is today of uh, what happened in the past and how what happened in the past can provide in many ways a roadmap uh, to solving some of the issues that we have uh, today. So I think that at the end of the day, you know, we are all, regardless of our uh, generation is, you know, you know, we're all responsible uh, for picking up that baton and moving forward. Do you think that people just got comfortable after affirmative action? Uh, I do think so. I mean, the 1970s, you know, in the early 1980s was a, you know, was a kind of low in, you know, Black political uh, movements uh, and the movement for civil rights. You know, the Black power movement was, you know, they were brought to an end by the state. I mean, the FBI was largely responsible for ending the Black power movement. Uh, But certainly uh, affirmative action theoretically, you know, was, you know, a very you know, it was uh, programs that made us passive in many ways, believing that uh, we have arrived or we have overcome. Uh, but the challenges were far from over. Mm. You know, are there aspects of the March on Washington that people often forget about in terms of the purpose of the march? Well, I think the march was a step towards 
liberation for black people in the United States and not really the end game. You know, so so contemporary issues like challenging de facto segregation, you know, fair housing, uh, police violence, which is mass incarceration, which are, you know, two of the most pressing issues that we face today, you know, access to the ballot, all of those things still persist. The civil rights movement didn't cure all of those ills. I mean, the March on Washington was supposed to be a catalyst for change and not solely, you know, obtaining civil and voting rights legislation. But also, I think it's an important conversation to have that King found it morally indefensible to align strictly with one uh, party. And unfortunately, counter to what I believe is in the best interest of African-Americans, most African-American organizations, traditional and otherwise, uh, and the African-American leadership class, you know, have become an extension of uh, the Democratic Party and have failed to hold it to account uh, for uh, its benign neglect in many ways. Hmm. And what, can you give me some examples of, of the party's neglect? Well, the party has not been uh, a strong advocate for uh, African-Americans uh, continuing to have unfettered access uh, to the ballot. Uh, the, uh, you know, less than vociferous support of the vo- of the uh, Voting Rights Act uh, is very uh, troublesome. Uh, the Democratic Party, uh, one of the most important issues that many African-Americans have today uh, is the question of reparations. The Democratic Party have not, you know, embraced uh, repara- reparations as a part of its platform, uh, particularly, you know, not supporting, you know, reparations in large part. And I, I mean on a federal level. Um, so there are many things. Uh, mass incarceration, of course, mass incarceration was ushered in, you know, under Democratic leadership. Uh, the war on drugs. I mean, it may not have started uh, with Democratic leadership, but it, it certainly uh, increased uh, s- exponentially uh, under Democratic leadership. So those are the kinds uh, of things that African-Americans kind of, you know, fail uh, to hold uh, the Democratic Party's feet to the fire. Yeah. Um Another aspect of the march was the labor movement, you know, um, wages, economic justice. And that fight is still so evident today when we see all of the unions and workers on strike from Hollywood to UPS pushing for higher wages. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's definitely an extension to uh, the labor fights that we've historically had coming you know, out of enslavement, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, trying to compel uh, labor organizations to embrace embrace the African-American worker, uh, and it didn't happen, it would be many generations uh, before that happened, whether we're talking about uh, fighting for uh, a higher minimum wage, and even, you know, of course, the conversation is usually around uh, $15 per hour for the minimum wage, which is still, you know, well below, you know, uh, a living wage. Uh, unemployment, a lot of, you know, African-Americans or a lot of Americans have, you know, given up, you know, on seeking employment. So it's been a kind of, you know, when we talk about 
the uh, unemployment rate uh, being small. It's kind of fool's gold because a lot of people have uh, given up. And I, I do understand that the pandemic also had uh, a great deal to do with that as well. Uh, but the labor movement or, or labor issues historically has been at the forefront uh, of the challenges that uh, many Americans uh, have faced and, and continue to face. You know, many of the things fought for during the civil rights movement are are under attack right now. Voting rights, education, uh, civil rights protections, fair wages. Can you connect the dots on how and why progress seems to be moving backwards on these issues? Well, a few reasons. Uh, Some I've already mentioned, but also I think without question, Donald Trump's presidency emboldened a certain segment of the population. Uh, He normalized outward racial hostility through his rhetoric that really harkened back to the days before uh, society started using buzzwords like law and order or, you know, the war on crime, the war on drugs, et cetera. Uh, And quite frankly, I mean, the rhetoric and and policies of a senator named Joe Biden uh, typifies the use of those buzzwords that still uh, amounted to racist practices and policies impacting uh, African-Americans. But today, um, you know, the rhetoric has returned to being unambiguously racialized. So it's been a, a return to that. Uh, but also historically, there's been a backlash to the perceived gains of black people in this country. What we are witnessing today, I think, is a result of the profound but temporary impact of the movement uh, that reached its height in uh, 2020, dealing with you know racial justice, police violence, et cetera. Uh, So much like the backlash against um, African-Americans that they received after the tumultuous 1960s, uh, police police repression uh, has really intensified uh, since the late 1960s. uh, And, you know, the FBI was largely, you know, along with local law enforcement agencies, you know, were largely responsible uh, for that. Uh, and attacking, you know, political dissidents. Uh, and we, we've seen a return to those kinds of practices uh, today. Hmm. Um, what I hear from, from many people today is that fair wages, economic justice, voting rights, education, civil rights protections, those things are not negotiable issues. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with that. Uh, or at least that they shouldn't be negotiable. But, you know, to my earlier point, you know, we constantly, you know, uh, put in other words, but we constantly find ourselves in negotiation with the very party that most African-Americans have embraced for the last 60 years. So in many ways, you know, I suppose it's it's easier to fight with those identified as the enemy as opposed to those who claim uh, to be friends. So those are my thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, Back to to the previous question, you know, uh, this 60th anniversary is coupled with a racist mass shooting at a Dollar General in Jacksonville, Florida. How big of a threat do you think extremism is to Dr. King's dream? You know, it definitely is a blow uh, to the message and meaning uh, of Martin Luther King and many within the civil rights movement who uh, embrace, you know, civil disobedience, uh, peaceful protest. Uh, but I think, you know, the extremism 
particularly in, in Florida, but certainly in other places, uh, is a tragedy uh, that highlights you know, King's dream as being very idealistic. It obviously did not reflect America at that time, uh, only what he had hoped it could become. But over the last several years, we have witnessed uh, a retreat uh, to very violent and painful chapters in uh, uh, American history or in American society. In what ways do you see extremism being mainstreamed right now? Well, I think Florida uh, is a good example that reflects the extremism, the violence that just happened in Florida and uh, Jacksonville. So whether we are talking about you know that violence or DeSantis's rhetoric and policies regarding teaching and learning African-American history and uh, the downplaying of the impact that enslavement had on Black people in this country. Um, but again, also the violence that we've seen in places like Jacksonville and Buffalo and um, Virginia and Charleston uh, a few years back. Uh, so in that way, uh, extremism has definitely been uh, mainstreamed. Do you think this, I mean, that in mind, um, do you think the strategies of the 60s, um, peaceful demonstrations, civil disobedience, are those strategies still effective ways to move things forward today? Well, after President Obama essentially criminalized protesting, I'm not you know, so sure. Uh, but of course, demonstrations should be peaceful. And I do advocate uh, for civil disobedience uh, in certain instances, but I also think uh, new strategies and tactics should be developed in our modern society. Uh, when we're talking about the civil rights movement or when we're talking about, you know, the 1960s, that was a long time ago. I mean, many uh, of us, you know, myself included, you know, weren't even born in the 1960s. So I think that uh, it's important for us to always approach uh, these issues with a fresh set of eyes uh, and evaluate uh, what we did uh, in the past, what worked, what didn't work, uh, and come up with you know, innovative and new strategies to ensure uh, that American society lives up you know, to its um, stated ideals. In what ways did the Obama administration criminalize uh, demonstrations? Mm -hmm. Well, there were you know, a lot of protests surrounding you know, Occupy Wall Street and then a kind of transition to um, Occupy uh, America, and it was during the Obama uh, administration. Uh, so uh, his administration developed uh, and signed into law HR 347, which uh, restricted you know protests uh, at or near uh, certain buildings. Uh, and you know it was you know it was passed by Congress, uh, but the bill uh, essentially. Uh, helped establish, uh, you know, federal authority um, to crack down on peaceful demonstrations. Uh, so in that way, um, uh, Obama, the Obama administration kind of criminalized uh, protest. Hmm. So how should we be marching forward in pursuit of the dream, in pursuit of uh, freedom, um, economic justice, uh, and and civil rights. Well, this you know may sound a bit, bit clicheish, and it is a cliche. Uh, but uh, by waking up, uh, we don't have the luxury 
uh, of waiting and hoping for a better tomorrow. I mean, we have to kind of take it today. And by that, I mean, you know, people of conscience should be loyal to truth and justice, uh, embrace our principles, um, and embrace people who speak to our needs as a community and as a society, rather than, you know, institutions who, you know, we think theoretically should be speaking to our issues or hope that they will speak to our issues. So I think uh, communities are really weighted down by putting uh, its hope and faith in corporate and political institutions or or corporate political parties, uh, rather than focusing exclusively on its issues and values and who shares those issues and values with the community. So that's how I think we should move forward. It should be uh, issues-based rather than um, uh, based on a political party. I've been speaking with Professor Adisa Alkabalon, Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Africana Studies at San Diego State University. Dr. Alkabalon, thank you so much for your insight. You are welcome. Uh, thank you for the invitation. How Jewish Family Services is working to move economic mobility forward for San Diegans. The racial wealth gap and the employment gap are still things that we're talking about and things we are addressing today in 2023. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We just heard from SDSU professor Adisa Alkabalon on where progress stands in the pursuit of Dr. Martin Luther King's dream laid out in his 1963 speech, Normalcy Never Again. A big part of that dream was and still is for everyone to make at least a living wage, have a job and build wealth. That goal seems to be far in the distance as we head into Labor Day against the backdrop of employees across the country demanding higher wages. Meanwhile, the cost of living continues to rise, driving more people into poverty. Kia Pollard is the Director of Economic Mobility and Opportunity at San Diego nonprofit Jewish Family Services. She joins Midday Edition to talk about the state of poverty in San Diego and what's being done to fix it. Kia, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you here. Um, You know, the March on Washington was for jobs and freedom. Many say Uh, that the jobs part of that march has been forgotten, the part where they demand a higher minimum wage, which was closer to a living wage, Um, more jobs, a way to provide for the starving and homeless in this nation. How much progress do you think has been made on those things? Mm. Well, I appreciate this question because, I mean, we are, is it the 60th anniversary of Mm -hmm. the March on Washington? And 
you know, on, on these days, I am somberly remembering the sacrifices of, of my ancestors, the folks who fought for some of the same things we're fighting for today. We're fighting underemployment, unemployment still, and specifically speaking, you know, the racial wealth gap and the employment gap are still things that we're talking about and things we are addressing today in 2023. We're fighting racial intimidation, the rise in violence, you know, including gun violence. That's very much included and undergirded when we talk about race in this country. Um, we're still talking about mass incarceration. So there are so many things that um, folks like Martin Luther King Bayard Rust and John Lewis were talking about then that are still very prevalent today. So while progress was made, um, we clearly have a long way to go. And that fight for economic justice is still ongoing. Uh, and it's something that you address a lot in your uh, line of work. Um, how many people are living in poverty in San Diego County? Poverty in San Diego County is it's a complicated subject because you have to really look and look at different segments of society. So there are folks, as I mentioned before, who are employed but aren't making enough to live in San Diego County when, you know, the median home rice price has risen so significantly over the past decade. You've got the COVID-19 pandemic where people have lost jobs, their main source of economic security. Um, people are hurting. And when we think about the number of children in poverty in San Diego County, just under uh, half children in San Diego County living in poverty, um, we are moved to action not only to eliminate poverty, but look at it and be very specific about who is experiencing the brunt of economic destabilization. And I want to dig into that a little bit more. Who is um, living with the brunt of economic destabilization? I mean, who in what neighborhoods uh, have been most impacted by poverty? One of the programs that we started with to address the um, the COVID-19 pandemic specifically, but the Underemployment are communities such as Encanto, Paradise Hills, Southeast San Diego uh, is what we call these neighborhoods, but geographically they comprise communities of color. We're talking about Latinx community, we're talking about the Black community, we're talking about the API community. It's these communities, and we're also talking about women. You know, if we look, take a look at gender, and the gender wage gap is also true nationally and locally. And so when we think about people who are devastated by poverty and poverty as an experience, we're looking at communities that are south of the eight when we talk about San Diego County, you know, underinvested and historically marginalized and redlined. So all of these um, all of these attributes are common when we talk about folks who experience poverty, but we also have to consider it's not just located in one community or one geographic area. You know, if we think about race and we think about gender as indicators or um, aspects of a community that might experience poverty, we have to think about it countywide. We have to think about Oceanside. We have to think about Vista. We have to think about all of these other enclaves where where folks might exist. And so 
the bulk of our programs, while we started in southeastern San Diego with four zip codes, we serve all of San Diego County in the work that we do. Hmm. You know, what are some of the ways um, upward economic mobility is impacted by poverty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that poverty is in in some in every sense of the word, an experience that not only deprives the individual, but it it deprives the family, it deprives the society. Um, and so providing ladders out of that experience, out of the experience of poverty, you have to think about income and liquid assets. You have to think about structural changes. Um, for example, um, 1960s civil rights legisla- legislation, um, Fair Housing Act, Voting Rights Act, those structural changes opening up very clear workforce pathways, pathways to home ownership and securing housing, things like that that moved families, individuals forward with the ability to participate in society. So I think we have to, we think about those ladders, think about on an individual level, what might work. And at the same time, you have to acknowledge and address the structural factors that really have historically held families back, individuals back from accomplishing and um, escaping really the experience of poverty. So now, you know, if I think about it in the programs that we do with guaranteed income and cash transfer, it's about providing those stepping stones because we know income is only one aspect of wealth accumulation. You got housing, you got businesses, you've got you know, stocks and and uh, mutual funds and things like that, that's very diverse. But if we're addressing one stone at a time, right, we have to really think on an individual level, how can we support it? On a structural level, how do we open up, you know, the pathways and, and the way out? In the conversation about poverty and also about homelessness, um, the focus seems to be on affordability, um, many times on housing affordability, on uh, inflation. Um, and it's not so much on wages um, and and pay. What do you make of that? Hmm, yes, <laughs> it really is a conversation about power. Um, at the root of it, this is just my analysis, uh, no one else, <laughs> but just me. Um, when people are talking about inflation, and you know the the forces that be they're talking about and want to talk about rather and shift the focus to something that is more abstract and outside of us whereas when we talk about the wage gap and the wages in San Diego County it becomes very clear that people are underpaid um wages need to increase to keep up with the cost of living here we have Faces and organizations and names to put to this particular effort. So I think sometimes people move the ball in public discourse and it really distracts from what we can do locally and what we see locally. So um, wage gap is very tangible. Inflation, not so much. And it's a Inflation is accumulation of all of these other market forces that people like to place outside of them, and it's harder to pinpoint. So I think what I make of that is we need to start having really clear dialogue, and we can do that locally in San Diego. Much more difficult at a national level, um, but it can be done. But 
making the conversation plain locally gets us to the state level. It gets us to federal eventually, right? So it all starts at home. And I think we just need to be very clear and precise in what we're talking about. That was Kia Pollard, Director of Economic Mobility and Opportunity at San Diego nonprofit Jewish Family Services. Still ahead, we'll continue our conversation with the resources and programs being offered at Jewish Family Services to push economic mobility forward in San Diego. You know, we're taking all of these lessons and we're transforming it into tangible work and programs and approaches that will make a difference. The resources available up next. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I've been speaking with Kia Pollard, Director of Economic Mobility and Opportunity at San Diego nonprofit Jewish Family Services, We're talking about economic mobility in San Diego, 60 years after the March on Washington. You know, and I, I would imagine uh, that it is incredibly difficult to pull yourself out of poverty. And when we look historically um, at how Black Americans, for example, were denied opportunities to grow wealth, in what ways do you see the wealth gap contributing to poverty here in San Diego County specifically? Um, When I think about this, I think about um, a really recent study, um, Wealth of Two Nations, I believe that came out maybe two years ago um, or a year ago, 2020, 2022, around there. And it studied um, 150 years of the racial wealth gap from Reconstruction era to today. And it is incredible, one, how much has changed and how much has remained the same. And um, I spoke a little bit about the the struggle for basic civil rights in the 1960s, but there is a whole trajectory prior to that where certain segments of the population, and I'm just going to focus in on Black people right now, were, were property, owned as property, and that was a massive transfer in wealth during the Reconstruction era where, okay, Black people are no longer property. How do we move forward? Um, And today we are still climbing out of that hole when we look at, you know, across the board, housing, you know, the number of businesses owned by Black people, people of color. Um, What shares of equity do we have? You know, I mentioned stocks, mutual funds, liquid assets. You know, there's um, a six to one uh, wealth gap right now between white Americans and Black Americans, and that that really means for every dollar that a white person has, Black person has seventeen cents. Um, and all of all of this information is is well studied and well documented. So we're at a point, the age of information, where okay, we have some clear decisions to make when it comes to addressing this wealth gap, and we have to look at it through a racial lens, a gendered lens, and we have to really take into account all the sources of wealth and how those accumulate over time. So it's a it's a very thorny, multi-pronged um, problem, complex problem, that in 2023, we really have to have some 
some complex solutions to address. Mm. So how is the department you lead at Jewish Family Services addressing uh, these issues? My department is new, and it's really appropriate that we're new and the timing is right to really start to dig in and focus on economics, as our predecessors did with the March on Washington. We're talking about not only providing foundational financial support, but really opening the doors to new pathways to supporting people in the human service sector. So how do we do service? What do our practices look like? You know, how do we recreate and redesign practices that really account for the unique situations of families and seniors and those who are at risk of experiencing homelessness? How do we do that in a way that will mobilize them and change structurally the things that have helped the wealth gap accumulate over time. So as much as we do with guaranteed income and providing the monthly resources to families in our community, right now it's $500 a month to families. We're providing guaranteed um, low-income families, predominantly families of color, most of the time, because again, income and wealth are, are income and race rather are linked. We're supporting them on that level and at the same time talking about, okay, how do we promote policy and structural change that changes the circumstances? How do we continue to level the playing field knowing that it was unequal for the vast majority of this country's existence? How do we start to do that? Um, And through talking about and providing money that is no strings attached, we give people the freedom and the freedom and the space and the time to revision life is a revolutionary act in and of itself. So as much as we talk about the money and the tangible, we also talk about the values that are beneath and, and hold that to be true. Mm. You know, um, during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, um, and just before Dr. King's death, the civil rights movement was moving into its next phase of fighting for economic justice. Do you see your department and your organization um, pushing for that at this point? Absolutely, I do. And it's what gets me up every morning and gets me excited to do uh, complicated work to to build and design programs that have not been executed here before. We are turning the corner. Um, Jewish Family Service as an agency is really looking across the agency to see, okay, who do we serve now and what is going to best serve them in the future? And how do we involve people in the creation of what that future looks like? And through my department, we're opening doors to more conversations about economics. We're asking people, you know, is $500 making a difference for you? And in what ways, you know, what have you seen open up for you? Whether that's in your family, um, personally, whether that's in your job or your professional life, all of these things matter as an organization that's providing service to thousands of people a year. You know, we're taking all of these lessons and we're transforming it into tangible work and programs and approaches that will make a difference. And I know the program uh, that you run has been up for a short period of time, but what's been the result so far? Oh, our first program, wow, it started 
2021 and planning, and we we executed it last year, uh, March of last year. And we have families, about 150 families enrolled, and some families have opted into narrative change work with us. People have been very generous with sharing data on what they've used the money on, you know, their purchases and things like that. In early returns, we're seeing um, folks are spending money on food. People are buying food to eat for their families. The second highest category is household expenses. So they're going to places like Costco, you know, they're buying toilet paper and all the household essentials and things like that. Um, and then, you know, you're seeing people pay utilities and other um, household expenses as well. So smaller percentages being, you know, dispersed on the other ends of the spectrum, but all really basic needs. People are spending it as you and I would. They're spending it on things that they really need. And I think that this provides insight, you know, when we hear numbers about poverty, who's experiencing poverty. San Diego County has a lower rate of poverty, you know, according to the census, right? I think we're about 10% or 11%. Um, however, you have communities that are really struggling with the area median income. You know, it's it's just increasingly harder to live, you know, the high cost of living. And that shows in what people are buying, where people are getting their support, and where people are getting their resources. A lot of people are getting their support from family, their community, their church, you know, all of these informal networks of support as well. And so as we're collecting this financial data, um, we're also talking to them and we're also hosting conversations. And we're also learning, you know, things that we didn't know about the needs that exist in San Diego. Can you talk about some of the some of the ways you think um, the racial wealth gap could be closed at this point? I think a lot of people like to talk about housing. And I think that that's great. It's well documented at this point that most of Black households wealth portfolio is housing. You know, there are a lot of Black homeowners that are emerging. And that's great. I'm loving what I'm hearing about Black business ownership increasing nationally. I think we still have lots of uh, growth in that area to do. Um, when we get into kind of the stickier subjects like stocks and other kinds of funds and investments, as well as pure liquid assets, I think we can do better. I think we can do a lot better in providing people options. Um, a lot of people like to say financial education I like to say financial consciousness raising. So what is out there? What resonates with that individual? Because now people are making conscious choices. Um, they get to choose where they invest their money and how they do it. How do we also provide options for collective wealth and build a solidarity economy? A new term that's really nice and really emphasizes the interconnectedness and interdependence of people. How do we uplift that too? Because when people have been disenfranchised for so long, it is collective strength that really, really helps level the playing field and pull people from experiencing poverty much more quickly, provides um, much more support. It's a communal lens that I think we can apply when we're talking about 
closing wealth gaps, it's it's um, it's imperative. It's really important that we start to expand our vocabulary and how we do it and how we approach it. And of course, you know, I mentioned earlier, workforce development It is so um, it's important and it's it's very it needs its own revitalization, that word, because when we think about it, we think about just, you know, getting someone the job and career readiness. But let's deepen our understanding about what that means. What jobs, what careers, let's get specific. Let's make sure that people can stay in the communities that they live in. You know, let's make sure that there's a clear pipeline to careers and what careers are they, right? So if we're thinking locally, you know, we can work with leadership to get these things done. And so I think all solutions are needed. And really, I think underneath all of it, we have to respect the individual's ability to choose. We have to change the mind frame and the mindset of doing economics onto people. We have to have them actively participating. Yeah. And, you know, and and we talk a lot about jobs and careers, uh, but, you know, there is a place for self-sufficiency in the the conversation. Um, And I know you're uh, also a business owner, Uh, You and your mom own a cafe shop in Sherman Heights called Cafe X by Any Beans Necessary. I love the title. Part of its goal is to build generational wealth in San Diego's Black communities. Um, How, in what ways are you all doing that? We, we've been at this since 2016 with the original inception of the idea. And it's, it's formed uh, officially as of five years ago. And we survived the pandemic. And I strongly believe that's because of the collective community that supported us, that believe that we have the power to create and provide the jobs. And we have the ability to create and provide so much more in leadership potential, right? So one of our duties as Cafe X and at the cafe is to develop that leadership pipeline. And we do that through our internship program. We're partnered with the Workforce Partnership, Access Inc., South Bay Community Services, um, and I'm leaving a bunch of others out, but nonprofits in the region, manpower, um, organizations that place um, young people, 16 to 25, at the coffee shop. They work, they learn about how to organize, they learn about how to develop events, they learn about coffee and what it means to be a part of a team and a collective. And we're a cooperative. So in the future, if they choose to, again, choice, they can join the cooperative as a worker owner. So have a stake, have some equity in the business. And that's really the movement that I sought to start years ago and see come to fruition. And I knew it wasn't going to be embraced by all. I knew it wasn't popular to talk about a cooperative and, you know, collective economics, but it's it's going to become necessary. And I strongly I hold that vision and that's what we've been doing. And that's one of the, the core programs that we do. Other things we do is we provide financial education, consciousness raising workshops where we bring in people to talk about housing and equity. We bring in people to talk about credit repair. Um, we bring in people to talk about end of life services like wills and trust, estate planning, things like that. So that our community has awareness of what these things are, and they can start to plan 
and co-plan with us and co-create, you know, the vision for their life and their family. So in many ways, you know, we're doing the work of economic mobility there. And it's it's all very much connected. The nonprofit sector, the business sector, I see it all um, working in tandem. So many ways to push the movement forward. I've been speaking with Kia Pollard, the Director of Economic Mobility and Opportunity at Jewish Family Services. Kia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. How much progress do you think's been made since the March on Washington in 1963? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Give us a call at 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.